Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, and with me tonight is my co-host, retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good. Let me just shut my volume off on my other computer. Yes, I'm doing good, Billy. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm really excited about our guest tonight, and I, I, I think I'm going to pronounce his, his uh, name correctly. It's Lou Velozzi. And he's a retired ATF agent, extraordinary uh, career. And I'm, I'm really excited to have him on the show tonight because, you know, the, we're family law enforcement, you know, and uh, he's also a Queens guy, you know, so he's, hey, he's Savannah, Savannah, Georgia by, by way of Queens. So what we're, we're going to do is we're going to go to our police off the cuff song. We we'll come right back with uh, Lou Velozzi. Two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes. Even an interview with the most powerful folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff. One episode just ain't enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. You know, Phil, uh, a subscriber asked us uh, to do a tribute tonight, a guy named John Donahue. He asked us, an officer was killed on the 14th of this month in a small town called Covington, Virginia, and his cousin is the chief of police there. And that little small town is taking it very hard that they lost one of their officers. That's a picture of the officer on the screen. Uh, he's, a, he's a Marine. He's the father of four kids. He's only 35 years old, and he only had one year on the job. Phil, you want to read the tribute to him? Sure, Billy. Uh, police officer Caleb Ogilvie was shot and killed while responding to a domestic disturbance call at a convenience store at 121 North Allegheny Avenue in Covington at about 4.47 p.m., as you said, Billy, on the 14th. The Covington Division of Police in Allegheny County Sheriff's Office, upon being alerted to the suspect's erratic behavior inside the store, immediately responded to the scene. As Officer Ogilvie and an Allegheny County deputy arrived, the subject came out of the store armed with a pistol and opened fire on the officers. Officer Ogilvie and the subject were both fatally wounded during the subsequent exchange of gunfire. Once the scene was secure, it was discovered the suspect had shot and killed a male relative inside the store. The female relative was not injured. Both employees of the business married to one another and related to the suspect. Officer Ogilvie was a U.S. Marine Corps veteran and had served with the Covington Division of Police for less than a year. He survived by his wife and four children. And Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia acknowledged his heroic efforts uh, of uh, Caleb Ogilvie on Twitter um, it was just a, a, a real hard one, Billy. Uh, he's only on the job about a year, uh, four children, uh, and uh, this domestic incident 
gone bad at this uh, farm and fuel gas station led to the deaths of obviously, as we stated, three people and this hero police officer. Rest in peace, brother in blue. Uh, to Christopher Smith, the chief of the uh, Covington police, and to all your officers, we sympathize with you. And all I can say is simplify and fidelis ed mortem. Absolutely. Happening too often. Lou yeah. Velo Velozzi, I got the last part of it. So great to have you on the show. You know, Lou, you have a trailer for your book, and I'm going to play yeah. it because it's it's actually pretty cool. And I'm going to put that on the screen, and then we'll get into talking to you. I know you're probably chomping at the bit to talk to us, but here we go. Betrayal was my job. As an undercover agent, betraying people is your job. And it's something you have to live with, but usually not a difficult thing to live with because the people you're betraying are committing serious crimes. My name is Lou Velozzi. I'm originally from New York. I was a federal agent for 26 years. I became an undercover agent for the last two decades of my career. My calling card as an undercover agent became storefront operations, undercover stings, where we would set up fictitious businesses. These businesses were owned and operated by the government, using undercover federal agents as the owners and employees of these operations, with the purpose of making those communities we were in safer communities by purchasing crime guns out of the hands of the criminals that we're using. We received a call from the chief of police in Statesboro, Georgia. And he said, man, we are having problems here in Statesboro. Uh, they were starting to have home invasions. They were starting to have a lot of armed robberies. Uh, the drug dealing was out of control. They were starting to see national gangs. Could you do one in our city? So we did. Lou, very cool. Very cool, Bless man. You. you know something? You. I mean, just watching that, I get the chills, man. You're a hero. And guys that do this kind of undercover work, it's so dangerous. And But the results that you guys get for the communities that you go into, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I, it's, you know, when you're able to, you know, as law enforcement, when, when we're able to put one of our own assets you know, inside, inside the criminal element, you know, in, in whatever community we're trying to make safer. Uh, you know, to me, it is the greatest investigative tool. W what is better than having one of us actually on the inside getting real-time information and, and collecting evidence directly, directly from, you know, these perpetrators. So, you know, I, I was an, I was addicted, man. I was an undercover guy. I couldn't stop doing it. You know, being an undercover, we had the, the dean of all undercovers in the world. And to me, he'll always be the dean. And that's uh, Joe Pistone, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco. And I mean, what he did, and you know what he did. And I, I'm not trying to undermine what you did. You, what you did was amazing. But he was living the life. You know, he was living the life of a wise guy, you know. And uh, but, but what you did, buying guns is always uh, super dangerous. And uh, you want to talk about how you ingratiated yourself into these communities and you got these uh, gangbangers and these drug dealers and these criminals to uh, to trust you. 
Yeah, you know, I kind of fell into these storefront operations. I, I started out my undercover career like most guys do. I, I was in alleyways and, you know, in the in the restroom of a fast food restaurant, you know, buying guns from convicted felons, buying small, making small dope buys, um, you know, kind of quick hits, uh, nickel and dime stuff. And an informant would introduce me to a to, you know, to a felon or to a gangbanger. And, you know, I'd buy some dope or buy some guns from them. That's how I started. That's how I got my feet wet. That's how most of us started. Um, and then I wanted to get on that uh, more into the national scene of doing these long-term infiltrations. That was my goal. And, uh, I, you know, with ATF, there was a lot of opportunity. I, I did some of the biker cases. Uh, I went undercover with the outlaw motorcycle gangs. Um, I did murder for hires. I did gang infiltrations. Um, you know, I was traveling around the country doing doing these different kinds of infiltrations. I did a mafia infiltration up in Chicago. And uh, I just got a phone call from a guy because I never said no. So if people needed undercover work done, they'd call me. And he said, hey, we're going to do a storefront operation up here in Augusta, Georgia. Do you want to uh, you want to jump in? And I said, sure. I didn't even really know what a storefront was. And uh, 12 months later, we had bought 430 crime guns off the streets of Augusta. And I was hooked, man. I saw that compared to, you know, a lot of times I'd be up, I'd be out for 12 months to 24 months working on one or two guys. Right. And at the end, you know, you, you got, you got one or two guys off the street here. We were, we'd get a hundred federal defendants, 400 guns uh, in a 12 month operation. You know, ATF had never seen results like this. And in that that operation in Augusta, it was called Augusta Inc. It was a tattoo shop. That's what really started all this. Um, and, and it was actually the, it was the local police in Augusta, Georgia, who were the ones who really kicked it off. We came in, you know, for the to do the undercover and help out with the money. And uh, then I just kind of took it from there and, and did a whole series of them. And with every operation, you know, we kind of had an evolution. Every operation got a little bigger and better after that. To the point where by the end we were infiltrating criminal organizations bolivian gun smugglers um so it, it just really worked out well lou talk a little bit about um living the part and understanding the criminal element understanding the lingo understanding how not to react when something happens mm -hmm. like you can't react like a cop you got to react like a criminal talk about that a little bit I tell you what, Bill, you know, at, at the beginning, I, I didn't understand the lingo. And, and so the approach I took at the beginning, uh, it was actually my first biker case uh, was with the outlaw motorcycle gang in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, the only reason I got picked for that gig, because uh, one of the task force agents, there was two undercovers, an ATF agent and an ATF task force. Uh, when they got invited down to bike week in Daytona, um, and they were going to do a ride with the outlaws. Uh, the, the sheriff's department, the task force officer was with said, listen, we didn't sign up for all this. And they pulled their guy out. So he needed a partner. Well, I was the only other guy in the Atlanta field division who had a motorcycle license. I didn't get picked for my skill. I got picked because I, I had a motorcycle license on my undercover <laughs> license. So when I, when they first brought, you know, the first thing I did when they brought me up there uh, was I dumped the uh, undercover Harley Davidson they gave me because I, I really didn't even know how to ride a motorcycle. I'd never ridden a Harley before. And, uh, you know, the informants, after I dumped the bike, they were like, we're going to, this is the guy, we're going to take this guy into the club, the outlaws clubhouse. He can't even <laughs> ride a motorcycle. And uh, 
so what I did, and and I didn't, I didn't know their culture. I knew nothing about them. You know, I had just kind of been inserted. So luckily the first time uh, they brought us in, the informants, they brought us into the clubhouse. There wasn't a lot of guys there. The president was there, maybe five or six other guys. I watched them. I stayed quiet. I watched them for about 10 or 15 minutes. I saw how they carried themselves and I went right up to the president and I said, listen, I said, what all, you know, what all due respect. I said, you know, I don't, I don't know your culture. You know, I don't know your rules. And I certainly, I don't want to offend anybody. I just, I want to learn. I'm here to learn. You know, I, I want to become one of you someday. And I just, I want you to teach me. And, you know, I just, I, they love that. I appealed to his, his ego, you know? And so he saw a young, big dude who he could mold, you know, and he took to that. Cause if I had gone in there and tried to act like a tough guy outlaw biker, they would have saw through me right away. And, and that yeah. taught me to hold back and, you know, and I played that my whole career. I, you know, I am who I am. I was just a hustler. And, you know, I didn't try to become someone else. You know, I just played my own role and just kind of stepped back and made the bad guys want to be a part of my hustle. That was always my technique. You know, and I, and the, go ahead, Phil. Oh, go ahead, Phil. What, what I was going to say was that's pretty funny because when we had Joe Piston on the on the show, he basically said almost the same thing that you said verbatim. He said that, you know, I wasn't trying to be somebody else. I was trying to be me, but in that world and in that life. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's what works. But, uh, uh, Lou, you brought up something that that was going to be my first question. Uh, I'm kind of like, uh, I believe, statistics and numbers and or facts, so to speak. And you brought up the fact that you'd be working on cases for a year or 18 months. And, and recover, you know, one defendant or two defendants and just a handful of guns. This sounded like it was really, really successful in taking, you know, uh, firearms off the street. Man, I mean, we made impacts. We made serious impacts in these places where we worked. And, and I can, I'll give you the best example I can give you of that is one of the most rewarding phone calls I ever got um, was one of the detectives who had, uh, he was in the cover room the whole time during this storefront. And he called me uh, about two years later, and I was already I was already onto another operation, working another operation. He said, "Hey, man, listen, I just got to tell you." He goes, "He goes, our narco guys, they have nothing to do." He said, "Our violent crime guys have very little to do." He goes, "There's no, there's very little crime right now in our city." He goes, "All the dope dealers and and the gun guys, everyone's worried that everyone else is a fed. No one's doing anything." He goes, "Our crime rate." is super, it's the lowest it's ever been. So to me, that's impact. Two years later, you know, the bad guys are still afraid to, you know, to go deal with their dope because they're worried, they're worried about who's a fed and who's not a fed because they just saw all their, a hundred of their boys get locked up. That's an impact on a society. That's, you know, that's meaningful change. That's the impact of proactive policing that Bill and I yeah. have been talking about it for the last year or so with all the uptick tick in crime, not only in New York, but throughout the country, but we've been citing it in New York. And until they turn their uh, ways to be proactive and, and, you know, start proactive policing, you're not going to see the crime tick down. I mean, uh, Mayor Adams in New York, he's uh, had three months in the office and he came back with uh, some, you know, form of an anti-crime that's in uniform now. And, you know, they made a couple of collars, but I mean, every single day there's more shootings and more shootings and, and it just, it's really out of control. So uh, a policy like what you guys were involved in in the ATF obviously 
had an impact. And uh, like that uh, detective that called you, I mean, crime was down based on one operation. So, uh, you know, you go into a bigger city, uh, New York or California or Chicago, mm -hmm. you could probably have multiple operations and really uh, turn things around. We did, you know, and we did that. And, you know, like you said, you guys, proactive policing, you know, we're never going to win the war. Like you talk to the DEA guys, you know, the, the war on drugs is lost. You know, even it's not a, the war on guns is lost, right? I mean, there's, there's just millions of them out there on the street, crime guns. But what we did through proactive policing was we kept everyone looking over their shoulder, right? You know, when you're taking the trigger pullers off the street, when you're taking at least targeting the baddest of the bad and they're seeing their counterparts get pulled off the street and they're, you know, a 25 year sentence, they're, you keep them looking over their shoulders. I don't think they're looking over their shoulders anymore. No. You know, Lou, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is how the entire criminal element in the in the town or the city that you were working in, they were coming in and selling you everything. They were selling you kilos of uh, cocaine. They were selling stolen cars. They were selling cigarettes you got involved in, of course, yep. guns. I mean, the, the impact of of those storefronts things was tremendous, and it's like, yeah. it's it's you know when I read how they didn't they don't do it anymore, I was like, mm -hmm. this is the you know this is policing in America, the whole anti police movement. It hit the ATF too, and it's it's outrageous. This can really make a town, a city, a state much safer because of what you guys were doing. Yeah, it's a shame, you know, the, uh, you know, the ATF enhanced undercover program, I might be biased, but, you know, we, we have the greatest undercovers in the world, in my opinion, and I worked with the greatest undercovers in the world. And, you know, I'm not saying that the, the men and women in there now, you know, they're, they're not, I'm not saying that they're not as good as we were, but they don't have the opportunity. They're not allowed to do it. So we'll never know, you know, we, and, you know, during the 90s and, and early 2000s, we were cowboys, man. They let us run and gun, and we were just knocking them off. And uh, it's just not happening anymore. So they don't have the opportunity. We still have an undercover program, but they're not allowed to They're not allowed to do what we did. It's, you it's know, Lou, shame. I always said even the greatest homicide investigators are the cities where they have the greatest amount of homicides. You know, probably the yeah. best investigators right now is probably Chicago because homicides oh, yeah. are off the cuff and – Miami, Miami, it's off the charts. Now in New York, they're going to get back to the old days because they're getting tons of homicides. But you get better at it, as you know, the more you do it, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, the, you know, the, the NYPD uh, guy, the LAPD guys, Chicago PD guys, I mean, th those are the guys everyone look up, looks up to, all right? They're the ones who they wrote the book. Because like you said, day after day after day, they're just doing it nonstop. So you, you're going to get good at it. And if you're not good at it, you know, you're going to get siphoned out of that, right? You know, Lou, I got to tell you, in the NYPD, uh, as of late, in the last couple of years, all the uniform guys, all the enforcement guys, so to speak, their hands are really tired. If you put your hands on somebody, the cell phones come out, it's on television, you're on the six o'clock news, you wind up suspended, God forbid, criminal charges. But the detective bureau that seems to mop up the mess, specifically in New York, every time there's a major shooting, a tourist gets shot or any kind of a homicide that is, uh, it's, it's newsworthy, 
the NYPD comes through and even with the restrictions on them now, you know, th there's, uh, there's a lot of restrictions with uh, cameras and all these different things, but uh, they're still able to thank God for the technology uh, that they can come up with, with uh, plate readers, uh, spot shooter, uh, you know, cell phone technology is just unbelievable. A lot of cases are being solved. And then there are video cameras, surveillance cameras, security cameras, just about everywhere. So that's like one of the big things. We, we were talking about it recently on one of our other podcasts, how in our time, Billy and I, and, and probably you, uh, before all of this stuff, there was a lot of legwork that went into it. And then interview and interrogation. Yeah. Uh, it's a proud moment when a detective can go into a room with a guy that's denying he committed a murder and after some time uh, be able to use uh, interview and interrogation techniques and get that guy to confess. It's really, you know, uh, a, a very satisfying feeling. And I've said it many times, you know, standing over a dead body with a notepad, not knowing who did it. And then sometime later, you have the person in handcuffs and you're sure that that's the person. There's no better gratification for a detective. But, and again, for you as an undercover to go into these places, it's super dangerous. I mean, you're, you're not dealing with guys that are, you know, uh, shoplifting, uh, you know, uh, deodorant and batteries out of a, a CVS. This is real time. You know, these guys are dealing in, in heavy weight. Uh, they're uh, gun traffickers, they're narcotics traffickers, motorcycle gangs. Most people, you know, general public, not talking about law enforcement, shy away from people like that. If a biker comes rolling down the street, most people are going to turn the other way. You know, you guys are, are getting in there and infiltrating it. I, I got to tip my hat to you. That's uh, really probably one of the most dangerous things that any law enforcement officer can do. Because at any moment while you're in there, if they suspect that you're the, you're the police, you're the popo, that could be lights out, God forbid, you know? You know, Lou, one of the things that I wanted to mention also is that, and and we probably, Phil and I both struggled with this too, work was so much fun and so interesting that we never wanted to go home lots of times. And you had that same thing with these undercover operations. You knew, you knew you were neglecting your family and you yet you still couldn't pull yourself away from your job. And that's an interesting thing. And I know maybe you have some regrets. I don't know your history mm -hmm. after that. But there's always regrets to that. But it's so intoxicating, the job and the 100%. work, that you don't want to go home. It's, cra it's crazy, yeah. right? You know, probably the same way you guys had it, it, like in the detective bureau, you know, we had it. Our, our crew of undercovers, um, you would hear about, you know, one of your guys, let's say, you know, this guy out in Arizona, you know, the word would come out, hey, man, he just wrapped up his case. Uh, you know, he got 40 defendants, uh, 100 guns, uh, you know, whatever, 100 kilos of, of coke. And, and so you'd have kind of two reactions to that. One, you know, my first one is I'm proud, man, right? That's That guy's on my team, right? Great job, and I'm proud. And my second reaction was, oh, I could do better than that, right? I can, right, I can right. one up on that. And, and so there was a, a competition among us. I, and I'm not, I'm not going to say it was healthy because it wasn't because we were never going home. But, you know, as soon as you'd hear some someone did one thing, you'd say, oh, man, I can top that, right? And I we jump in and, and try to do something even bigger and better. And who, you know, who pays for that? You know, your family, right? Your friends, like that, that's who pays the price for that. Because, man, you're so wrapped up into it. As you guys know, you get so wrapped up into it. You think you're saving the world. And you what you're really doing is you're losing your priorities about what's really important. 100%. You know, we always used to say, like, when a guy was so gung-ho in his first year or two, he'd say, hey, 
you got 18 years left to do this shit. Go home, you know. Right. You got 18 or whatever you want to stay on. Do you want to stay on to your 63? Go home now, you know. Yeah. You got to have both parts of your life taken care of, not just your job, right? Billy, I want to make a point about something you said, how it's addictive. Before we went on the air, I was talking about that homicide case where I had four perpetrators and mm -hmm. I was up for three days straight. And you're so right. I was single at the time, so it was probably a little bit easier. I didn't have a family. I, I had parents and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, it was my case. And when the first perp dropped and, you know, then I was up for two days. And then when the third perp, uh, we knew where he was. They were like, you know, other guys from the homicide team and guys from my office were going to go out. And I was like, no, I'm, they, they were allowing me to go home if I wanted because I was up for two days. I said, nope, it's my case. How could I go home and sleep knowing that, you know, they were out getting the third bad guy on a four perp homicide? I wouldn't have slept anyhow. So uh, you're right, though. It's addictive. And, and there's a lot of times when I investigated cases, you know, you go home for the night and you or you go into the rack at the precinct and you're trying to, you know, catch a few hours of shut eye and you bring it, you know, I talk to this person and what, what, what are we going to do next? And it just stays with you until, you know, case closed or case solved, you know? So I, I would imagine the same thing happens to you guys, Lou, when you're doing the undercover work, because there's so many moving parts to it for you guys too. I mean, you had a team of guys in your, in your storefronts, no? Oh yeah. There was always a team, you know, a different undercover team. I, uh, you know, it, it was a mistake that I was usually the case agent and the lead undercover, which which is not a good move. Um, it's not recommended. I don't think they even allow it anymore. But I, I once I learned how to do it and I learned what I was I was doing, you know, the smart guys who work undercover, they put in about four or five years and then they get out and they go do something else. Those are the smart guys. But the way I looked at it, you know, after about four or five years, man, I, I finally knew what, what the hell I was doing. And now I'm, I'm in my prime, right? And so there was no way I was stopping. So I, I kept going. I never stopped because at the at the expense of my personal life, you know, my, my professional life was off the charts. I, I was making these cases and bringing in these numbers of guns that uh, ATF had never seen before. And so they weren't going to stop me or slow me down because they loved the results. And, and it just snowballed. Um, you know, same as a detective, just solving one homicide after the other. Just we just keep going because it's adrenaline, right? Absolutely, folks. This is police off the cuff, real crime stories. Uh, if you're not subscribed to us, please go on your YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And if you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And you see the folks in the chat with the green font, they're part of our YouTube family, and we have five different levels on that. Uh, can join that and be part of the police off the cuff YouTube family. You know, Lou, it's funny. Even my wife to this day says, Oh, you were never home then. <laughs> and I'm like, Hey, well, I was making a living, you know, right. I, my, my kids yeah. never wanted for anything. I took care of them. You know what I mean? But she, my wife worked too. So she can slap that back in my face. You know? so, Talking I mean, about I, not being home yeah. after nine 11, I, oh, for two yeah. years straight, I was in the intelligence division and uh, I had two small children at home and I was working the, the first two months. We worked seven days a week, uh, like 16 hour days, and then it went down to six days a week. And uh, so for, th for those two years, I did a thousand hours overtime my last two years on the job post 9-11, which was 2000, 2001, 2002. And then going into 2003, I was on track for another bad year, but uh, then things started to calm down. So uh, yeah, I, I could relate to that, Billy, the uh, not being home.
I'm sure if my wife was listening, she would hate hate the imitation I did of her just then. <laughs> there is no good imitation. No, none of, of a woman. She'd be like, "Don't you ever do that?" Oh, I'm doing it again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Lou, I gotta I gotta tell you, I gotta indulge you for a quick story, but I think it's gonna relate right to what you do. I have a very very close friend of mine, a retired lieutenant, Joe Calderera, saved my life. I saved his life. We were both in that crime together, but he went off to narcotics and he, they were doing a major case. Guys in his team were doing a major case with these Israeli drug dealers. So Joe, if Joe opens his mouth you in two seconds, you say gangster or cop because he's, he exudes that Italian from Brooklyn. So uh, during the case, the undercover had to introduce his boss claiming to be part of organized crime. They were selling a major amounts of heroin to, and cocaine to these, uh, you know, from Israelis going to organized crime guys. So Joe uh, meets them at a club and he grabs the, the head guy and he puts, Hey, how the hell are you doing when he's got a cigar in his mouth? And they loved Joe Cal. He, he had a fictitious name, but they loved him. They partied, they were drinking. They were in this club in the city that everybody went to all the gangsters were there, regimes. I think it was anyways, long story short, they take the case down and they bring them back to the narcotics office and Joe Cal walked in. Now, these guys, it was like six guys, I think it was, four, five or six guys, you know, and they, they, they had them handcuffed to the desk and stuff, and they were processing them. And they were like, you know, they were like crying in their hands just about. And when Joe walked in, the, the main guy, the lead guy looked at me and goes, no, not you, not you. It can't be. It can't be. Because they were so uh, convinced that he was like a mob guy. And they, yep. they just they just flipped out. When Joe tells me the story, he could tell it to me 10 times. I'm peeing every time. Did you ever have anything like that happen? Did you wind up, uh, after you locked these guys up, were you, uh, you know, did you uh, have stories like that? I did. You know, I, I didn't enjoy that moment. Um, you know, we the burn moment. I, I never wanted to be around for that. I like to do my job and get out of town. I, I really didn't want to face these guys afterward. Um, I didn't, I got enjoyment out of that out of that burn moment. I, my worst one was up in Chicago. Um, uh, my mentor, uh, Chris Bayless, he called me, I, I was at the tail end of uh, one of my storefront operations. And I was, I was out to dinner with my wife telling her that, listen, I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to slow down. And during that conversation, my phone rings and it, it's my guy up in Chicago. And he said, uh, listen, and he goes, I want to, I want to, try and get you up here and get a run, take a run at this guy. He's in the outfit, which is, that's what Chicago calls the mafia, the outfit. He's in the outfit. Um, he's also a member of the Outlaws motorcycle gang. And uh, the FBI has thrown three guys at him and he sniffed them all out. So, and two of them were childhood friends. Um, and uh, he sniffed my, he was a smart guy, real sharp. So, you know, he had a, he had a jewelry store in Chicago and uh, it was a, just a total front where he was just in the back room. There was he was meeting with, you know, his mob buddies and, and the Latin Kings, gangster disciples, uh, you name it. Right. Outlaw motorcycle gangs. And uh, so he had he did have a sign that said we buy gold where in this jewelry store. And so my buddy Chrisser bought with ATF money, um, these gold teeth, uh, these gold crowns that still had the teeth in them, all blood stained from his dentist. <laughs> right. And he put a bunch in a crown Royal bag and he sent me to the front door and said, just see if you can sell them and start a conversation with this guy. 
right? That's how it was the coldest I've ever started. There was no informant. It was a total cold call. Um, and the guy was super suspicious, right, of everybody. And, uh, you know, my cover was that I was kind of a down and out MMA fighter, kind of a, a punching bag up there, uh, just, you know, and I got in with a local gym up there. And uh, it, it was a difficult, that was a difficult one. And I, I, it went good the first time. I brought more bloodstained gold teeth back. And uh, it, eventually I got through the door. And, uh, but it was, it was a lot of work. And I ended up spending a lot of time with this guy. He ended up getting uh, 60 years. That was, that was the biggest sentence I've ever gotten on a case. Um, and for the takedown at the end of this case, it was actually the only case that I've ever worked with the FBI. It was a joint ATF FBI case because, you know, we don't get along with those guys. And, uh, but it, it worked pretty well. I wonder why. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. So, uh, for the takedown, they wanted me to bring him to the, uh, the I think it was a Hilton at the O'Hare Airport in Chicago and bring him up. And he thought he was going to meet Hoist Gracie, this famous jujitsu guy. And uh, what he, who he was really going to meet was a bunch of ATF and FBI agents who had put all the evidence in boxes in this hotel room because, you know, they wanted to kind of overwhelm him and get him to flip. And, and I knew from being with this guy for a year, there was no way he was flipping. I knew. But anyway. So when I brought him, he, when he showed up, he showed up with his kid and uh, I had to bring him up there. And so when they, when they started after they, you know, badged him and all that, and they uh, started interviewing him and, and he wasn't really talking and he wouldn't believe that I was undercover and was who I said I was. So they were like, Hey, listen, you got to go in there and show him your badge. And I was like, ah, oh, do I have to? So I did it, you know, and he hadn't said a word. He wasn't talking. And uh, I said, listen, I said, it's, uh, I said, you know, I'm just doing my job. This is my job. This wasn't personal. And he looked up at me and he looked me in the eyes and he goes, what? He goes, you're telling me it wasn't personal. He goes, you, you've met my family. He goes, we've, he goes, we've broken bread together. We spent time together. I brought you in my circle. You've met my family. Everything you've told me up to right now has been a, a fucking lie. And you're telling me it wasn't personal. And, you know, I had no response for that. I, I mean, I walked out of that room. I had no response for that. And, you know, uh, that, that that's one of those burn moments. And, you know, because if you as an undercover, when you, especially when you're doing these long terms, man, you know, if you don't feel some of that, you know, you, you don't have any humanity in you, man, because, you know, not everybody is all bad, you know, and, and you develop relationships. And even though the guy might be doing a lot of bad stuff, it doesn't mean there's still not something there. You know, this guy was a good father. You know, right. he was a good. It was, so, yeah, I didn't enjoy those moments, man. Like, you know, you know Lou, but, I, I found that I found that so interesting in reading the book that you didn't want to be there on the day of the takedown yeah. because of the personal relationships that you got into with these criminals, but it's understandable, you know, and to, to not to keep uh, going back to Joe Pistone, but to me, this was a very interesting question to ask. And we asked him the same thing because I, and not even, you know, the movie Donnie Brasco, but in real life, he had the guy, um, Sonny Black and they were, they were with each other for years and they were tight. In fact, Sonny Black saved Joe Pistone's life. A mugger put a knife to him and, uh, Sonny Black knocked the guy out. Yeah. And I was just like, I even asked Joe, I said, Joe, after all of that, 
how did you feel when, you know, when you had to take them down, you know, and, you know, Sonny Black was the, the total stand-up guy. He turned right. himself in knowing he was going to get whacked. You know, he just left his jewelry and his car keys with the bartender and went in and got whacked, you know. That, and that's Cosa, that's Cosa Nostra. Right. <laughs> well, how that's about, Cosa how Nostra. Happened, how about what happened with the girlfriend, Billy Postat? Uh, I think it was years after the takedown. They, they, she actually had a meeting with, uh, with Joe Pistone, and uh, I believe that uh, he he gave a message to the girlfriend to tell, you know, to tell uh, uh, Joe Pistone, who was Donnie, that uh, like he didn't hold it against him. He, you know, he knew he was doing his job. There was some kind of a, a meeting. Remember that, Bill? Yeah, yeah. Sonny Black told the, the girlfriend that he had nothing against uh, Joe Pistone. That he, knew I, he was I don't doing. hold it against and him. Basically, yeah. You won. Yeah. You know, this was a game, and you won the game. You won. She you know? actually contacted the FBI and said, "You know, I want him." And they said, "Listen, that doesn't happen. He's, uh, you know, he 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 was an undercover." No one meets Oz. Oz. No one meets him. <laughs> right. Exactly. No one gets to see Oz. <laughs> yeah. But but then after you know pushing, they they contacted Pistone and they said, "Listen, she wants to talk to you. She's got a message to deliver." from you know sunny black and he's like all right and they won i think they did it in washington or something yeah they uh, did it's in washington dc yeah and uh she yeah. sat down and she said look he told me to tell you that you know it's not uh, he doesn't hold it against you whatever blah 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 so i guess you know l listen there was a, a tremendous relationship between joe pistone and michael franzese uh who wound up becoming an informant uh, we know that Tommy Dades, who's our, 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 on our show quite a bit, he's uh, like an undercover encyclopedia, uh, not undercover, he organized crime encyclopedia mm -hmm. in, in the New York area. He knows every gangster going to before he was born. He's like a, a real computer when it comes to that stuff. And he's got relationships with a lot of the guys that he uh, that he flipped, like, for instance, Jimmy Calandra. Sammy the Bull Gravano, he stays in touch with both of those guys. And uh, those guys, listen, uh, Sammy, uh, you know, he's doing his thing. He, he made his deal with the government. And, uh, you know, as long as he doesn't break the law, you know, he's uh, entitled to his freedom at this point. And Jimmy obviously wasn't in as far as uh, Sammy was, but uh, Jimmy really turned his life around. He's got a very successful podcast. And uh, Bill, were, uh, Bill and I were on it about two weeks ago. And uh, so it, the point is there's relationships between – uh, these guys that wound up, you know, Tommy wound up locking these guys up. And, uh, you know, Lou, what he's trying to say is your future is a podcaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your future is to become a podcaster. After all you've done, all the takedowns, now you got to become a podcaster, you know? That, <laughs> Lou, Lou, I wanted to ask you something, though. I mean, obviously you have a brilliant career. Uh, what you did was amazing. What was the scariest, scariest moment of your undercover career? You know, for me, it was uh, always, I was never worried about what they would do if they found out that I was an undercover fed. Because, you know, I look at the data, right? And realistically, if they find out, if they even think it, they're going to put as much distance between themselves and you as they can. Them and their organization. They don't want to bring any heat on, on themselves or their organization. The biggest danger was always that you know bad guys kill each other all the time right Rip and that off. because you are believable yeah they're, and so what when you start dealing with you know a lot of machine guns or a lot of kilos and and they know you're bringing a lot of money to the deal you know even guys you've dealt with 
five, six, seven, eight times and everything's been fine. You know, on that ninth time, they might just decide, listen, you know what? We know he's showing up with 50 grand. This time we'll just take his money and we'll, and we'll whack him and, and we'll keep our dope or, or our machine guns or whatever it is. So um, those, those were always the, the bigger deals, you know, were the scariest moments for me. And it happened in one of the storefronts. Um, and, and that part was in the book, Bill, when, when those guys came in and, and it was guys who we had dealt with, we had probably dealt with these guys five or six times and everything was, you know, as pleasant as, as a gun deal can be right. You know, from gangbanging convicted felons. Uh, and you know, we were square, we were fair on the price, you know, they showed up with what they said they were going to things had gone well. Well, those same guys that we were dealing with, they came back that night with the ski mask on with guns to, you know, and they're now they're going to shoot us up because they knew we were sitting on a lot of cash at the store. And that was always the biggest danger to those storefronts. You know, once you start doing a lot of deals, they see all this cash. Right. And they're like, OK, you know, maybe we'll take a shot. You know, there's no honor among thieves. I don't care mm -hmm. if you've dealt with them 10 times. They'll come back and either rob you or burglarize you that night. And uh, when when those guys came in and I was like, you know what, all this work, we we're only about halfway into the storefront. I was like, now I'm going to be, I'm about to be in a shootout. And even worse than that, the whole operation shot, right? It's over. And we just really were hit, had just gotten hit the ground running. And here's these guys coming in with the ski masks and the guns. And, but ironically, a defendant that we had hired to work at the store got up and put himself in between us and, and the guys who were tr there to rob us and talked them out of it, talked them down. Um, and, you know, that that was and Bill, you read it, you know, that was a, a huge mistake we had made hiring that guy. And, uh, you know, at the end of the case, when we're all like, man, you know, he's going to prison for 20 years and the guy twice. Twice he, he thwarted armed robberies at that place. Saved your life, maybe. And, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And his reward so, was, you know, 20 years in federal prison. So, so he, it, it was Barzini all along. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he was he was hired and he set up the robbery or he was uh no. So Phil, we we had uh we had we were buying some dope off of this girl and she said, Hey, my my uh boyfriend, you know, has has crack. He sells crack. You guys want to deal with him? We said, bring him in, we'll feel him out. And you know, we did real nice fella for a crack dealer. And uh we ended up buying a big quantity off him. And, you know, this is when those those federal crack statutes were, were brutal, right? I mean, you know, if the guy had multi-felony convictions and he sold over, and I think he sold about six, seven ounces, that's it. You know, he was going for 20 years. That's and, A1, uh, then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so she came back to us and she said, listen, you know, as a, I know you guys like him and everything went well. He's on parole. As a condition of his parole, he has to be employed. Could he work here at the store? Oh, I see. And so we, we all we were like, yeah you know, good opportunity, right? Because, you know, we're kind of new faces right here and we're trying to get in with all the criminals. If we brought in one of their own, a guy they know, and he's sitting behind the counter with us, instant cred, right? And and so we did it. And it made the whole operation more difficult because, you know, we can't come out of roll. We got to keep this whole operation now a secret from him and he's there every day. And he ended up working there for eight months for the rest wow. of the operation. And uh, so they walked into the store and were about to rob it. And he got him. They, they actually came into the location. Oh yeah. They came in masked up guns. Yeah. And, and you know, you we all, like, we're all the our shit. yeah, we, we were behind the count. We were in there, you know, we were, we had already, uh, 
it, it was late at night. We we're just about to close. So, you know, we came with our guns out. They, they had their shit because we could see out the window. And uh, he jumped in, in the middle because he knew them. They were there earlier that day selling us guns. And, uh, yeah, and he, he did that twice. Wow. And, wow. you know, his reward was 20 years in prison. You know, and I, I even Crazy. tried. I, I wrote about that in the book, though. I, I went up on uh, on the stand. Yeah, no, I, I remember reading that. That was uh, that's you know uh, comparable to just you know j- just liking a guy that that saves your life during your undercover, but you're at the end of it, you're the police. And that's right. U.S. No, Attorney's right. Office wouldn't uh, help him out. They wouldn't uh, you know give him a sentencing sentencing recommendation. They tried. You, the judge wasn't having it. Uh, they okay. put me up on the stand and gave it a shot. And the judge looked at me and this old Georgia, you know, federal judge, man. He said, guess what? He goes, that defendant was not helping you because you're a law enforcement officer. He was helping you because he thought you were a gangster, just like he is. 20 years. Gina G, yeah. thank you for yeah. the $5 super chat. She says, great guest, Lou Veloze on tonight's show. Where can your book be purchased? Is it on Amazon, Lou? Yeah, and go on Amazon. Just Google storefront sting. It'll come right up on Amazon. Yeah, we played the uh, the trailer for this early. Here's the book right here. Lou, you got really nice ink, man. And I, I read in the book that you had some really bad tattoo artists doing your doing your tats. Uh, just <laughs> and a hell's angel. Yeah. You had a a, a a a sex a sex offender. Doing your tats, <laughs> a convicted child molester. Yeah, there, oh, you know, there man. was a point. There was a point in my career where I was, I was drunk, and I was laying on a filthy pool table uh, while this outlaw biker was, one percenter was giving me a tattoo, a terrible tattoo on my arm here, and uh, I remember, you know, a moment of clarity, thinking, you know, I, I came from a good family. I went to college. You know, what the hell am I doing? I should be home with my wife and kids, man. And, you went to a good. You went to Lafayette. You went to Lafayette in uh, what, Pennsylvania? Yeah, go Leopards, go Pards. That's a that's right. a good school. Yeah, pretty good football, yeah. right? Uh, I just want to go quick to a commercial. Uh, Phil, are you ready to read this? Sure, Joel Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joel Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Very cool. You know, Lou, um, go ahead. Go ahead. I I want to tell you guys, I just want to say that. So, you know, I went back and I I watched a whole bunch of your shows and I loved them, man. I mean, I almost stayed up. I stayed up to about three in the morning watching your shows and and just thought, (laughs) thank you. and, And I have, I thought about it. And the reason why, and I truly believe this is because you guys, I mean, you're born for, there are no, there's no one better at interviewing than big city detectives, right? If you want a good interview done, I know when I did, I would call, when I was in LA, I would call LAPD detectives to come do the interview. You know, and you guys, of course, New York, same thing. And uh, you, it just transfers over to your show. I mean, you're born to do this. Listen, Oprah, um, all, the, all the rest <laughs> of them, they can't hold a candle, you know, to a, to a detective who knows how to interview people. And it, it carries over into the show, man. It's just thank you. It's all, well, it's Lou, thank you. Nice that's, that's that is very oh, nice. I, I, I even do a, 
Oh, I even do a Dr. Phil uh, imitation. What you need to do is to go and don't think that this $60,000 watch I'm wearing has anything to do with me being an asshole. <laughs> See, Billy's not only a retired sergeant from the Hunter Squad, he's also a stand-up comedian and actor. He plays instruments. And what else? He's a college professor. And now he's a podcaster, so... That's why I know Lou Lou is destined to become a podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, so my book has been been optioned by a uh, a beautiful out in Hollywood and uh, for a for a Netflix series, Netflix type series where each each uh, storefront uh, would be a different season. So you would have a different cast of undercovers like we really did, Uh, you know, and each each store. There's so many stories and and plots and twists and turns you know with each of these storefront operations between all the mistakes we made uh i mean just to give you guys just a quick idea there was just out of control fist fights uh you know rival gangs would come in and next thing you know the whole place erupts and we got to come out with baseball bats and try and try and you know stop all this uh you know we got harassed by the cops because most of the cops didn't know you know they just thought we were we were thugs and operating a thug business, you know, the fire marshal, code enforcement. Um, just a lot of mistakes were made. There was uh, just, you know, evictions. You know, we had eviction notices. Uh, they, even the landlords wanted us out of there eventually. And in the meantime, you know, all we're trying to do an investigation, right? We're trying to do an operation. All this other outside stuff's going on. Uh, we find we're having trouble identifying people, right? Because you know, this guy will come in, he'll be selling us a machine gun, but he gets dropped off by, you know, a 21 year old female who's driving a car that doesn't come back to her. Right. And maybe probably a rental or something. And, and just, to, he's given us some street name. So what we decided we, after a while, we're, we're starting getting some defendants and you can't charge them if you don't know who they are. Right. So, you know, we started getting creative and coming up with ideas. So we said, you know what, people will always give you information when you give them something. So we came up with giveaways, right? We'll give away a flat screen TV. So fill out this little form, <laughs> give me great. name, number, whatever, email. Just give me something, I some way to reach you. And, you know, a guy would come in and he'd sell me a, a sawed-off shotgun. And I'd say, hey, man, you know, they would be right there on the counter. I'd say, fill that out. I, I'd say, you know, you know, I, run, I own this place. I'll make sure you win. Just fold the corner or something. And sure as shit, he'd give a real cell or a real email or something that would allow us to figure out who he was. And we'd make sure he won so we could get him back in. Um, you know, we had bowls of Sharpies and we had, you know, blank walls and we let them tag the walls and, and we, you know, we ended up cutting out all that drywall as evidence because, you know, they're threatening. We said, don't, no hating up there. Don't, but of course, you know, they're threatening each other's lives, you know, with all the gang signs (laughs) and all that. Uh, so we got, we came up with a lot of creative kind of stuff. Each storefront, everything was very different, you know, from a very street operation with a tattoo shop. Um, to then to a head shop where we were selling paraphernalia, tobacco products. Then we really upped our game and did a, a military surplus store that had a shooting range attached. You know, ATF was not crazy about that idea, but somehow I talked them into it. You know, now we got bad guys <laughs> on camera, convicted felons going in there, you know, blasting their guns. So, and then we took it to the final step where we became freight forwarders. And I actually had to learn how to be a freight forward and learn the terminology uh, because you can't just bullshit your way through that. 
right? You, if you don't know the customs forms and you don't, you know, you don't know all the terminology, they're going to see right through you because now we're driving Jaguars and Mercedes and we're dealing with criminal organizations on a much higher level than we were with a tattoo shop with street thugs. Uh, so, and that's kind of how the book goes along telling the evolution of all this. And, and I thought that in my mind, when I started writing the book, I said, man, this is made for Netflix right here. And yeah, so great. hopefully, you know, Lou, yeah. one of the things I just want our, our listeners to understand is they would have a, um, the central store and attached somewhere in the store was another room where a bunch of other agents would be with all the recording equipment and yeah. also backup in case but they can only back you up if it was really like a death situation, right? Because or else they blow the cover, right? Yeah, exactly. You know that that was a uh, definitely a worst case scenario thing. And, and you know, and I always say, all my, all my years of working undercover, I don't care how good your cover team, your cover team is there to avenge your death because you're doing an undercover deal. If, you know, if if they have it in mind, you know that they're going to kill you. There's no cover team that's going to get in fast enough before they can pull that trigger. Right. Great point. That's Great just point. reality. Yeah. Did I hear you right that you actually got tattoos as part of your work? So that's dedication. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know too many undercovers that have done that. And, and they were bad, like real oh, bad. Do yeah. you still wear them? You still have them? I still got them. Yeah, I got a lot of them all yeah. over. Yeah. <laughs> now, will the ATF pay to get them removed or no? No, no, no. That ship sailed, man. Yeah. Right. You know, Lou, I, I loved when you, you were posing as like a UFC fighter and you were like, shit, I hope I don't get a fight because I'm going right. to get the shit kicked out of me, right? The bad guy, that's, you know, he was going to sponsor. Uh, he was getting me sponsors. And, uh, you know, it was eventually to be set up where, uh, you know, all, all his auto mafia guys, they would have they were going to be there. And, and uh, you know, I had to wear the robe with whatever, Tony's Pizza and all that. And, uh yeah, the whole time I'm thinking, man, I hope this case comes to a close for I, I got to step in the ring with a real fighter and get my ass kicked. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Training at the gym was bad enough. Yeah. The tattoo is bad enough, right? <laughs> I mean, the tattoo is, yeah, it's for life, man. You know, and I came home, my wife would look at me, oh, that's awful. You know, that's terrible. But, a lot of long sleeve shirts in your closet. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Lou, let me ask you something now. With, with this behind you, you're a, a retired ATF agent. Do you have any uh, PTSD from this stuff, you think? You know, I I, I think that I did. Um, and I, I think I've dealt with it. Uh, you know, my career did not end well. Um, you know, I ended my career being under investigation uh, by the OIG. And, uh, you know, I, I waited till it was all over and cleared and everything was cleared before I retired, but it, you know, it wasn't a good ending to my career, certainly not the way I wanted it to end. Right. And, uh, you know, I had uh, come to a point in my career where at the culmination of a lot of these big operations, um, I was believing my own bullshit, right? I was, I was receiving all these awards and all these accolades. Um, OCDF, case of the year, uh, the Department of Justice, Project Safe Neighborhood, Gang Investigation of the Year, Gun Crime Investigation of the Year, U.S. Attorney's Office, Law Enforcement Officer of the Year. But you know what awards uh, I wasn't receiving? Father of the Year, Husband of the Year, Friend of the Year. Um, my priorities uh, were out the window. And, uh, 
you know, that nonstop undercover life, uh, when you start believing, I was Sal Nunziato, that was my undercover identity, uh, you know, and I was walking around acting and talking like Sal Nunziato more than Lou Velozzi, uh, believing my own shit when I had kids and a wife at home, um, you know, but I'm out saving the world. So everything crashed. And um, when all that happened, uh, definitely there was there was some PTSD, but I, I addressed it, man. I, I I went and, you know, got therapy. And, uh, yeah. you know, because, no, you know, L- 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 I'm asking that to be like uh, drill into your personal uh, background. No, 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 no. But I think we all have it, you know, no, no doubt. Bill, yeah. You know, you do law enforcement for over 20. I did almost 27. Phil did 22. I think I have a piece. But, you know, there's that part of you that there's some fear. You know, there's fear that because you understand what can happen. Like, there's a lot of people that have never seen someone get shot or never mm-hmm. seen the results of a someone getting stabbed or see the results of someone hit with a baseball bat. We've seen all of that stuff, and it's not – the healthiest thing to see. It doesn't help you sleep at night. I'll put it that way. You know, or, or see two hundred and ten story collapsed buildings on the ground with thousands of people burning inside of it. I mean that uh, that was probably my not probably that was definitely my worst day on the job. And I definitely uh, had symptoms of PTSD. And I uh, it took me a long time, but I, I did some therapy and uh, it helped quite a bit. So uh, there's definitely something to be said about that. And anybody experiencing any nightmares or anything related to PTS, uh, I strongly urge you to put the macho stuff on the side. It took me a couple of years before I did, and uh, but uh, it helps. So there's definitely uh, statistics that show just talking about it uh, rather than stuffing it down inside of you, as they say, uh, definitely helped me. Yeah, guys like us, we don't want to, we don't go to therapy. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, but, you know, eventually when you, when you, you got to come to face reality and, and it helps, you know, because, and to me, the, uh, the toughest job in law enforcement is, is just wearing a uniform and being on patrol. Like those are the guys I have the most respect for, especially the guy, men and women who do it for 30 years, who just love the street and stay on the streets. And, you know, with what they see it every day, all day, uh, you know, to me that, you know, if you don't have, if you don't have some issues at the end of that three decade run, uh, you're probably not human. Um, right. Uh, 100%. so yeah. yeah, I'm a huge advocate of getting some help, man, you know, get, get some help so that we can enjoy life in our retirement that we earn. Yeah. Right. So get some help and then enjoy it. man. yeah. You know, Amen, Lou, we've had, a, we've had a lot of, um, psychologists come on that talk about that. And, uh, Dr. Steven Washkel, who is a suicide prevention doctor, and, you know, law enforcement has one of the highest levels of suicide of any profession there is. And we're always, if anyone ever calls us up and says, can I come on and talk about suicide? We're like, we, you're booked. Right when on. do you want to come on? You know, I, I never consider numbers or anything. If someone wants to come on and talk about suicide and they can help other people, you know. But, uh, you know, it's, look, I, I really, I really enjoyed the book a lot. And I, the idea of a storefront sting is so amazing. And the fact, I mean, just the whole underworld of criminals that came in there and the job you guys did when you took these things down, you know, there's the politics of the anti-law enforcement politics is unbelievable because you were doing an amazing job. You were dropping crime. You were getting guns, getting drugs, getting stolen cars, 
and putting away all these despicable criminals. But yet, no, you know, you were wearing white socks, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know? And it's essentially, you know, they, they, uh, you know, not, not, I'm not just talking about storefront operations. I'm talking about all law enforcement operations. It seems over the past few years, they've been willing to forego all these proactive enforcement operations that work, that reduce violent crime for political reasons, man. And yes. politics and law enforcement don't go together, man. Now that politics has set, it's crept into law enforcement. Look what it's doing, man. And who's suffering? But the people, the civilians. That's, that's right. Suffering. The public. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, the public. Yep. It's wrong. The people that are the ones that put the politicians in office that pay their salary. They are the ones that are paying the price, unfortunately. But like you said, I mean, there was always political components to the law enforcement. The mayor's office controls the police department right. to a degree, but there was, you know, if you go back to the eighties, uh, the nineties, when we were on, yeah, the mayor was in charge. He fired and hired the police commissioner, but the police department really, uh, the mayor would say, get crime down. And and we would get, you know, we would use innovative techniques and, you know, resources and all the things that we did back then. And, and the one thing that worked that stands out in law enforcement history is the broken windows policy that was instituted by Rudy Giuliani and, and Jack Maple and Bill Branton in the NYPD. And it, it really turned around crime over a period of years. It didn't turn around overnight, but it was really, really uh, something that was effective. It turned, uh, turned around crime. And we went the other way now, and they're afraid to go back to that because of all these civil libertarians and on and on it goes. And, and as you said, politics itself. You know, yeah, folks, yeah. the book is Storefront Sting. You can get it on Amazon and uh, get it now because Lou is about to become a star. He may even become a movie star. And if he doesn't become a movie star, he's going to either become a podcaster or a tattoo artist. So, Lou, I don't, don't, don't want to give you your next profession. Where do you go from here, Lou? What, do you, what, what are you looking forward to with the rest of your life now? Well, you know, I do a lot of, uh, I'm actually, you guys were talking about Joe Pistone. I'm doing the uh, Southern California Gang Investigators Conference with Joe and the Narcos guys um, in in San Diego, I think, you know, in a month. Uh, So I do a lot of, I'm doing a lot of speaking engagements, um, conferences. Lou, Lou, when you see Joe, tell him to take his sunglasses off at night, all right? He's hiding a bag, I think. Under yeah, he'll, he'll never not, take those. Even when he comes on the show, he has all the lights off in the room. I'm like, Joe, we can't see you. He I wants it that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't know if you guys have ever, ever talked to the Narcos guys, uh, Steve Murphy and Javier Pena, the guys. The we haven't, but I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to. Bring I'll, them on. I'll, I'll make the introduction. You couldn't give two better guys, man. And uh, I'm doing a conference with them in Vegas. So, you know, I love speaking. I love going out and giving. I have a whole presentation I do. Uh, I love doing that. And I'm I'm going to put everything into pursuing, you know, what what's coming off the book right now. And hopefully uh, with this series and I'll be able to, you know, be a on the on scene uh, consultant for that. Um, but, I, you know, I have learned that nothing in Hollywood happens fast. Holy cow. No. It's slow. Oh, it's not, not like the way we work. We know that story from Tommy Dades. With the, we, we're doing a show tomorrow night. Actually, it's a part two with a, a book called Friends of the Family that Tommy and uh, and uh, Joe Ponzi and Michael Vecchione wrote about. Uh, we had two 
uh, NYPD detectives that were actually doing contract murders for uh, the Lucchese crime family in New York for uh, gas pipe queso. They were on his payroll. So the largest corruption scandal in the history of the NYPD. And there's still, it's still stalled. They've had, they bought rights and then it just expired. They bought the, uh, you know, the rights to the book numerous times, but there's something in the works now. They're hoping it gets done, but you're right. The wheels of uh, Hollywood turn very slowly. Absolutely. There's some strange people out there. Like they'll call me and they'll be like, listen, you know, the holidays are coming up. So no one's going to do anything probably for the next month or so. And I'm like, what, what kind of business is this? Are you kidding me? If I I operated like that, I would have been fired. But, but Lou, you know, Lou, you know what I learned when they they say we want you to do this. The next word out of your mouth is how much? Exactly. How much are you gonna pay me? Because they want yeah. everything for free. They try to get law yeah. enforcement to do shit for free. My my next thing is out of my mouth is how much you how much you paying me? Yeah. Oh, you and want money? You that want money? All the bullshit artists. Yeah, yeah. I said right. yeah. I get five hundred a day plus expenses just for you to talk to me. Or else, I, you know, let me get off the phone now, you know? Right. Yeah, they, they, there's not many checks coming out of Hollywood. They're all coming into Hollywood. That's the yeah. truth. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. Yeah. Philly, last words? Last words. Lou Veloz, very, very nice to have met you. Uh, I just hope and pray that you get that series done. That sounds like that's going to be great. I mean, uh, just talking with you uh, the short time that we had tonight. Uh, you did God's work, as they say, and uh, thank God you're here to tell us about it. And I'm glad that you touched on the points about that, uh, you know, uh, you get caught up in it, you get addicted to it. And unfortunately, your family and your friends pay for it. But you're retired now and uh, hopefully you can turn things around and uh, enjoy the rest of uh, eternity uh, in your life. And maybe with the uh, some of the funds, if you do get that Netflix series, maybe you could get some of those tattoos erased if you want. <laughs> well, your wife will be happy. But uh, right. good luck with everything, Lou. And, you know, you got to come on again. And I think that somewhere down the line, uh, Bill's right. There could be a good podcast uh future for you you know and uh just keep it well, in the back man. of your mind well thank you thank you guys for your service first of all thank you guys for having me man it was a blast and i would love to come back let hopefully i'll be signing you, you, on Lou, you have an open invitation and i That's know your right. last name is pronounced veloze phil wasn't listening to that trailer you know wait wait it's, <laughs> and he's and he's italian too Velozzi. That's what I said. I'm a Italian. You said Veloz like a Shadrul. I, I might. I might have said that, it's Veloz. That's Veloz. Yeah. Veloz is French. They'd have to okay. be Italian for it to be Veloz. Right. Like a lot of Italians, when my family when my family came over, so the spelling of my name is V E L L O Z Z I, but right. when they came in, it was, it was Americanized. They tried to Americanize. Yeah. It, so. They cut a lot of the names down. It was too hard to spell and pronounce, so they would just they'd name you after the town you came. You know, we're talking about my grandfather, nineteen eighteen, when he came, but they kept their names intact. But uh, a lot of people, like my friend uh, Greg Marcini, his his grandfather was Lago Marcini, and they they just cut off the Lago and they threw in Marcini. So that's what his name turned out being. Well, my name was Cannon, and it still is. There you go. <laughs> Big right. gun, Cannon. <laughs> Big guns, that's Big right. Guns. Cannon, Cannon Law. <laughs> yeah. So, Lou, thank you so much, all you folks listening tonight. Thank you so much for being in the audience. If you're not subscribed, your friends are Lou. Subscribe to Police Off the Cuff on our YouTube. And, uh, Lou, you have an open invitation. Anytime you want to come back, just give us a call. Great show, man. God bless you guys. Thank you.
Stay Thank safe, you. everyone. Good night, everyone. One episode, just